Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Be in verses 1 through 6, or you can find that passage on page 9 of your service guide. Galatians chapter 5. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Well, Father, who can believe what we're about to read, what we're about to consider if you, Lord, in your grace do not intervene by your spirit in our hearts? I am merely your servant, expounding upon things that are too great for us. So pray that you would, by your spirit, give me power in the preaching of your word, that you would, by your spirit, give all who are here ears to hear, hearts to believe, feet to stand firm in your grace, in Christ. We pray that any who are here who don't know you, don't know the power of the resurrection, that this morning you would intervene on their behalf, that they would repent and believe. Pray that you would protect us from distraction, to protect us from worldliness, protect us from the worries of this life that entangle us, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, essential oils, if you're familiar with them, are made through a process of distillation. By taking a plant, a flower, a fruit, and extracting the the essence of it, not the whole thing, just the core chemical composition delivered in the form of an oil. And so in the times that I preach in the coming weeks, in the coming months, I want to consider with you the essence of the Christian life. Not everything that can be said, but just some of the core composition. Certainly the whole Bible is important. But what I want to consider in the months ahead is a few passages of Scripture that just distill the Christian life down to the essential elements that distinguish it from every other means of salvation in the whole world, which aren't really means of salvation. Every religion in the world, every self-help system in the world. What makes the gospel, the Christian life, distinctive? In Galatians 5, 1 through 6 is one of those very passages. In order to really understand what the Christian life is about, we have to understand what God is saying right here. Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. 
So what's the Lord grants salvation to us? How are we essentially to live? How are we to relate to God and others now that we actually belong to him? In many ways, that's what Galatians 5, 1 through 6 is about. Verse 6, only faith working through love. In Christ, only faith working through love. What a statement. Separates everything we believe from every religion in the world. Paul's writing to a number of churches throughout the Galatian region of Asia Minor. That's why the epistle's titled to the Galatians. These are churches that were planted during Paul's first missionary journey. It's recorded in Acts 13 and 14. So the church of Antioch at Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. At the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas and others are going to begin their journey back to their home church at Antioch of Syria. And it's on the way back that they receive news about what's happening in the churches of Galatia. And based on what he hears, he's compelled to write this letter and send it back to those churches. So we could ask, what, okay, what compels him to write? Well, Galatians 1 verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that's God and Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to desert, distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, they're getting squishy with the gospel. They're getting loose with the gospel. They're deserting Christ and moving from what Paul calls the grace of Christ, which is just four words to sum up the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the grace of Christ. Your merit didn't save you. He's saying God saved you by grace. God the Father sent his son into the world who died on the cross as a payment for our sins, who rose from the grave as a vindication of his righteousness, who ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father who will one day return for his people and he will reign for all the ages to come and all whose faith are in him will reign with him It's by grace that God chooses us and sets us apart to be saved, to believe and be saved. By grace, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us new hearts and unites us to Jesus. By grace, the Spirit opens our eyes to Jesus Christ and gives us the faith to repent and believe. All grace. All grace in Christ. And that's the message Paul preached. That's the message the Galatians heard, were convicted, repented, believed. And as Paul and Barnabas and their team leave, these false teachers sort of come in behind them, teaching a Judaized sort of Christianity, that God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not enough. They also needed to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, that without circumcision they could not be Justified. They could not be declared righteous before God by God. And the members of these churches started to buy it, started to be persuaded by it. That's why in Galatians 3.3, Paul writes, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
having begun by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and hoping in him for salvation, are you now trying to perfect yourself, save yourself by keeping certain parts of the Mosaic law? Paul writes in Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So by the time that we get to chapter five, Paul is sort of set up to deliver the inevitable conclusion of everything he's been saying. The essence of your life on earth as a Christian. And he's not writing this just because some people every now and then, some Christians every now and then might in fact perhaps struggle maybe. No, he's saying this will always be the temptation to drift from the gospel of Jesus Christ, to desert the one who saved us. So here's the main idea. And if you have a worship guide with you, hopefully the outline is there. Kind of the outline for my sermon is in it. And hopefully you'll see there even the main idea printed on one of the pages. Since Christ has set you free from the power and penalty of sin, keep standing firm in that freedom in order for faith to work out itself through love in your life. Since Christ has set you free from the power and penalty of sin, keep standing firm in that freedom in order for faith to work itself out through love in your life. Freedom, firmness, faith. Those are the three things we're going to talk about. Number one, freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. In other words, Christ set you free so that you would live free. Well, free from what? Well, free, first of all, from the power of sin, which is the law. But apart from Christ, we are all slaves of sin, held by the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the laws of the old covenant revealed sin in us. It convicted us of sin. It condemned us in that sin. The law tells us, okay, don't, don't covet. And in our flesh, we just covet everything. It says, okay, don't, don't murder your brother or sister in your heart. And then when we really face it and look at it, even try not to, we see all kinds of anger and bitterness and murderous impulses in us. God says, do not, and something in it inflamed us in the flesh. You parents of small children, you really want your small children to, to sort of obsess about something? Just tell them not to do it. Tell them, don't touch the plant. And that plant will take on a kind of gravitational pull unknown to anything on earth. Everything in them will be drawn to that dirt. That's what the law does. Or it says, okay, don't covet we covet. Don't lie. We lie. The law wraps us up in a rope using basically 613 constrictor knots, which are knots that are made in such a way that when you tie them around you, the more you fight them, the tighter they get. That's what the law does. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You try to keep the law to commend yourself to God and we realize just how true that is. 
We use the law of God or any law as a means to make ourselves righteous, to reconcile ourselves to God. We realize if we're honest, okay, this is worse than we thought. I'm more prone to rebellion than I ever thought. It's like set up a basketball goal that's 30 feet high and then just have a dunking contest and just see who does it. Every attempt you make will only reveal to you how far you fall short. No trampolines, no tricks, just you gotta jump and dunk it. And there may be some in the room that get a little higher than the others, but it's nothing to boast about that you only fell 17 feet short. That's what the law shows us. The law is good, but can't make you good. The law is holy, but can't make you holy. It imprisons us, holds us in custody until someone comes and rescues us. Galatians 3, 23 through 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What he's saying is that the law is a servant to salvation, but not the provider of it. The law points to our need for a savior. It doesn't help us become self-saviors. It is not a self-help book. It is not tips for self-improvement. No, the law doesn't teach us how to leave our prison of sin. It keeps reminding us just how deep inside the prison we are. The law is not rungs on a ladder to heaven, but bars of a prison cell holding us in custody. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the power of sin is the law. It holds you, binds you, reminds you how far short you fall, reminds you that you need help from the outside. In the words of Romans 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, to show just how far out of bounds we had wandered just how far out of bounds we had transgressed. You know what the second half of Romans 5.20 says? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law shows us how far we wandered. The gospel shows us how far Christ went to retrieve us. The law shows us how deep in the prison we lay. The gospel declares how far Christ went to redeem us, to bring us out. For freedom, Christ has set you free. That's what Paul's saying. From the power of sin, which is the law. He's also set you free from the penalty of sin, which is death. Romans 8, 2, we read it this morning. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That not only is the power of sin broken in your life, but the penalty of sin is paid on your behalf. Not by you, but by Jesus. That's why Paul is going to remind the Galatians in Galatians 3.11 that, that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before you. Publicly buried. He rose. He appeared. The saints saw him. You know he did this. You know he paid for your sin. You know God was satisfied in his sacrifice that he rose. That through his resurrection, he conquered death on your behalf. Though the wages of sin are death, Jesus paid it for you. 
So if you imagine owing a bank a, a billion dollars, no hope for paying it back, not in a million lifetimes. Because if you've learned anything, the longer you live, the more debt you accrue, not the more you pay off. And yet a benevolent friend, sort of just on your behalf, goes to the bank and pays the debt completely, settled. And then you try to go down there to that bank and make a payment, they're not going to accept it. They're going to say, yeah, this account is settled. The debt's been paid. We closed it. And you take out your little wrinkled up $5 bill, they're going to laugh at you. Well, yeah, I know somebody paid it a billion bucks, but I'd love to chip in. How ridiculous. Go buy a Sonic drink. Do something else. The debt's paid. So that when Jesus cried out upon the cross, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Nothing more was to be done. Nothing more needed to be done. The sins of his people washed away. The wrath of God completely satisfied. Though dead and buried, he rose on the third day because death had to let him go. Death had no power over him, no dominion over him. And because it let him go, it must let you go if you're in Christ. To think about that, if you're in Christ, death won't recognize you. Death will say, yeah, you don't belong here. No hold. It's just a doorway to glory. His death counts as your death. His resurrection paves the way for your resurrection. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The power of sin broken. Penalty of sin paid. Therefore, Paul's saying, act as a free person. Stand firm in that freeness. Point two, firmness. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Because of the freedom that we have been given in Christ, Paul's saying, okay, stand firm. That through Christ you've been released from the prison of sin and death. Do not submit. Don't volunteer to re-enter that prison and earn your salvation through the law. You don't belong there. You've been set free from that place. Don't volunteer to go back. Stand firm, he's saying, in God's grace. Stand firm in God's promises. Stand firm in trusting that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was sufficient to satisfy the justice of God, sufficient to atone for your sin, sufficient to purchase your forgiveness, sufficient to provide righteousness to you, sufficient to secure your adoption into God's family, sufficient for the Holy Spirit to regenerate you, sufficient for the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and secure you for glory. He's saying, don't go back to legalistic slavery. Stand firm in the true gospel. You know, try not moving for the rest of your life. I think what you'll find, it's actually very, very hard to do. For most of us, it's a lot harder to stay still than it is to move. Try getting your three-year-old today to not move for the rest of the day. Try getting any of your young children to not move for the rest of the week. You'll realize there are forces in play that are very great. It's very hard to be still. Very hard to stand firm. Now try to do it in a 60 mile an hour wind. Try not to move. Because the winds of legalism, of works religion, are constantly blowing upon us. Everywhere around us, swirling. Do more. 
try harder, be better for God to love you, for God to accept you, for God to redeem you, to secure you. Paul says, stand firm in that wind. But how much harder to stand firm in a 60 mile an hour wind if you're standing on a moving boat in the ocean? That's even more difficult. You just think about, not only does the wind of legalism blow around us, but our own proneness to self-righteousness, our own proneness to earn it, to pay for it, is swirling inside us. And so it's not just a wind blowing on us, it's the rocking back and forth that's in us, the temptation to want to pay for it because something in us wants to pay our way. Something in us wants to achieve it. Something in us wants to earn that right standing with God be able to look into the mirror and say, you know what, you really are worthy of this. God really didn't have a choice but to save you because you're, you're pretty good, especially when you compel yourself to other people. You've got that 30-foot goal to dunk on and, and you got six feet up. Everybody else only got four and a half. There's something in us that is just drawn, that gravitates in the flesh to self-righteousness. In the case of the Galatians, the temptation was circumcision. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept even just that one thing as your justification before God, that one thing that makes you feel secure before God, that one thing that you wrap up all your identity in, and this is why God's mine and I'm God's. It's because I have this physical circumcision. So Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. What Paul isn't suggesting is that once you're saved, you can fall from grace and not be saved. Now, what he's saying is if you persist in your life trying to be justified before God by your works, then what you're proving is he was never yours to begin with, and you were never Christ. He's saying anyone who tries to be justified before God by keeping the law, even one part, like circumcision, refuses God's grace and chooses to be judged based on their merit. Then Paul's careful to tell us, but remember, if you just pick one, you get the whole thing. We don't get to pick and choose from the menu of God's law. It's all connected. It's got all these ligaments and tissues about loving God perfectly and loving others perfectly that connects all those 613 commandments together. And so you grab one out, you get the whole thing. It's like playing Jenga, except they're all super glued together. You don't know it, so you keep pushing it, but you push it, you try to get it out, the whole thing collapses. You get it all. You set Christ aside. You're severed by him, from him. And we have to realize there's nothing worse in all the universe than standing before God on the last day, severed from Christ. Him, a chasm away. You standing on your own before him. Away from him as hope. Away from him as refuge. Away from him as deliverer. Then anyone moves away in this way that Paul's suggesting proves they were never his. You've probably heard of sort of the mathematics of grace that Christ plus anything equals nothing. 
But Christ plus nothing equals everything. Stand firm. Either grace or law. Either faith or works. Either Christ's merit or your merit. Pure grace or fall away. There's no middle ground. There's no hybrid in heaven. So while we may not be tempted to add circumcision to the work of Christ, we might be tempted to add other things. Church attendance, church membership, baptism, Bible reading, diligent prayers, abstinence from alcohol, physical fitness, voting Republican, getting the vaccine, not getting the vaccine, wearing masks, not wearing masks, work ethic, what we don't watch on TV, what we do, what we do watch in movies, what we don't, fill in the blank. And realize on that list, some of those things are good things. Some of those things are things God commands. They just don't save you. That's where it's tricky. We need to realize just because God tells you to do it and obey it doesn't mean doing it saves you. Paul's saying, no, it's Christ who saves you. Thinking, or more like feeling, this justifies me before God because it's not just about what we're thinking. It's our whole emotional life is wrapped up in this. How much of our sense of security in God is based on performance? How much of our sense of comfort with God is based on performance? How much of our sense of just, okay, I'm okay with God is based on how we did the last seven days? Versus are we in Christ or not? Even judging everybody else those ways. So we must exert energy, not adding anything to the person and work of Christ for our salvation. We can't just go with the flow. You must exert energy standing firm. Energy standing before God, knowing it's based on the merit of Jesus, not your performance. We must exert energy holding the ground of grace. Just the undeserved, unmerited favor of God lavished upon you because he chose to love you, because he chose to forgive you, because he chose to redeem you. Stand firm through the Spirit by faith, which brings us to our third main point, faith. Notice what Paul says in verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, the presence of the Spirit in you, the power of the Spirit in you, grants you faith to eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So are you looking forward to the pandemic ending as if something worse won't follow? Are you looking forward to, okay, not wearing masks? Are you looking forward, okay, to the snow being gone? Looking forward to, well, fine, but none of that should compare to the eagerness with which you wait for the hope of righteousness. Nothing in our waiting should compare to our waiting for that. To be declared righteous before God, by God. To actually be righteous before God. We eagerly wait for the return of Christ, who is our source of righteousness. We eagerly wait for the resurrection where we will be glorified, which will be his perfection of righteousness in us. That's why we have to be very careful about waiting. Okay, I can't wait to get to high school. 
I can't wait to get out of high school. I can't wait to finish college. I can't wait to get a real job. I can't wait to meet the person I'm going to marry. I can't wait till we have kids. I can't wait till the kids get out of the house. I can't wait till I can retire. I can't wait to get this house we've been wanting. I can't wait to get in shape. I can't wait for this disease or sickness or pain or this to end or that to end or this to start. The discouragement, the misery, the anxiety of that kind of waiting. You just wake up one day and go, what, what have I been doing for the last 30 years? The gospel says, yeah, don't eagerly wait for that stuff. Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And it leads to a resounding conclusion in verse 6, where Paul's going to deliver sort of the pure distillation of everything he's been saying. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You can only imagine how that landed on a first century Jewish audience. That act of obedience under the old covenant does not make you right with God. That's what he's saying. Only Christ can make you right with God. And once right with God, circumcision adds nothing. In Christ, it doesn't count. I wonder, many of them wanted to kill him. You mean this thing that I've sort of wrapped my identity in? This thing that gives me a sense of comfort before God? This thing that makes me feel a part of the community? This thing that God almost put Moses to death for not doing with his son? Doesn't count? Paul's like, exactly. In Christ Jesus, it doesn't count. In Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus counts. And once right with God, circumcision adds nothing. Circumcision was merely a sign under the old covenant pointing to Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham who would fulfill all God's promises to Abraham through the line of Isaac, the child of promise, not through the line of Ishmael, the child of slavery. Circumcision was just a sign pointing. And now Christ has come. He's fulfilled the righteousness that the law required. He's paid for sin. He's been raised. And now those who are in Christ, the external keepings of the law doesn't count. That in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. Rather, faith working through love. By faith, the Spirit, in other words, accomplishes in us what the law couldn't accomplish. Why Paul is going to say in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The law brings death through sin. The spirit brings life through Christ. That's what he's saying. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I was saying that's how it works now. Christ set us free to live for him. That's what he's going to say in verse 13 of chapter 5. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's why grace never produces licentiousness. 
It always produces love. And so any thought that, okay, the more you grasp grace, the more you live by grace, the more you understand grace, the more you wrap your life in the grace of Christ, the more licentiously you will live, the more lustfully you will live, that somehow that sets you free to indulge the flesh. Paul's like, that's not how grace works. That's not how having the spirit of God in you works. No, the grace of God through the spirit of God anchored in Christ produces love. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 20, 22, is love. So see the sequence. Back in verse 5, through the Spirit, faith, verse 5, hope, verse 5, producing love, verse 6. So what the grace of Christ does in us. What life on earth now as believers is about. Only faith working through love. So what I want us to do with the remaining time is just consider five points of application. Five things to sort of take with us this afternoon, to dwell upon, to consider, to ask God to do in us. Number one, devote yourself to faith working through love. So this is a mighty work of God's grace and spirit in us. You must devote yourself in prayer, in wholehearted effort, to faith working through love in your life, abiding in his word rather than abiding in the world's words, pleasing God rather than pleasing people. You have to work at that. Trusting God's grace rather than trusting yourself. You have to devote yourself to that. Live life as if God is totally sovereign and providential over your salvation. Because he is. He's totally sovereign and providential over pandemics. Totally sovereign and providential over elections, over cultural change, over your career, over your bank account, over your health, over your relationships, over your marriage, over your children, over your parents, over your church. Knowing he forgives you in Christ. He uses all things for your good in Christ. He fills you with the spirit of Christ. He's preparing for you the kingdom of Christ. He will fulfill all his promises to you in Christ. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, then live free. Live without worry. Live without shame. Live without condemnation. Live without bitterness and resentment. Live without selfishness. Live without feeding the flesh. Christ set you free. Believe that you would love Christ and love others. You have to devote yourself to that. Number two, guard yourself from anything that prevents faith working through love in your life. Guard yourself. What tempts you to disbelieve the goodness of God? What tempts you to disbelieve the graciousness of God, the faithfulness of God, the supremacy of God, the holiness of God, the wisdom of God, the eternal purposes of God, all these poured out for you in the person of Jesus Christ? What unnecessary things in your life diminish your faith and stifle your love? Get rid of them. Paul's saying, this matters. A TV doesn't matter. This matters. A Netflix account doesn't matter. 
This matters. Keep up, up to speed with social media. Doesn't matter. It's all changing anyway. It's all moving around anyway. The hope of righteousness isn't going anywhere. Christ isn't going anywhere. Faith working through love will always be what life in Christ is about. Refuse to read and meditate upon words that shrink your faith and strangle your love. Refuse to view images that shrink your faith and strangle your love. Avoid input that lowers God and demeans people. Redirect conversations that lower God and demean people. Pay attention to your spiritual diet. Notice and remove stumbling blocks. And I don't know what those are for you. Many in this room won't know what those are for you. God knows what they are for you. You probably know what they are for you. So guard it. Think about all the things in our life we guard. We park our car somewhere, we lock the doors. We have fences around our yards. We have garages we put our vehicles in. We have alarm systems. And man, how much do we spend on our military budget in this country to guard things, to guard our nation? How much talk about borders and border control and to guard things? You go to banks, things are guarded. You go to schools, things are guarded. How much time do we spend guarding the affections of our hearts? the things we love and don't love, the things we serve or don't serve. Satan is happy for us to spend all our resources guarding things that are going to perish anyway while we don't guard the things that are meant to last forever. Guard yourself from anything that prevents faith working through love. Stand firm. Number three, measure spiritual maturity by faith working through love. And everything we think, everything we feel, everything we do, here's the essential question. Is this from faith and for love? What I'm about to say, is it from faith for love? What I'm about to do, is it from faith for love? Spiritual maturity is being more and more overtaken by that sequence. From faith for love. When you talk about life, about politics, about pandemics, about health, education, money, people, anything, do those words, do those thoughts, do those emotions arise from faith and serve love? Love of God, love of others. When you think about and speak about how God is running the universe, which he is, every detail of it, he's running it. When we think about it and talk about how God runs the universe, does it come from awe of God, reverence for God, for the sake of the glory of God and the love of others and the building up of others? So certainly spiritual maturity is a work of the Spirit inside you. That's why it's by faith, through the Spirit. It's not how much Bible you know. It's how much of what you know do you actually trust? How much of what you know do you actually build your life upon? How much of what you know from God's word do you actually apply and live out? And that's hard. That is not a human work. That is not a fleshly work. That demands, okay, the spirit of God working in us. Desperation for him every day. Spiritual maturity is not how much better than other people you look. 
but how faithfully you love them with the gifts that God has given you. And sometimes it's those who don't look so good to you is where your love is most tested, where the depth of faith working through love in your life will be most exposed. God just has a way of making sure to bring people around you that just don't fit you, don't rub you the right way. Someone once walked up to a preacher and said, you know, you're rubbing the cat the wrong way. And he said, well, then turn the cat around. It's like the message isn't going to change. But it's God who will use all those things that rub us the wrong way to turn us around. Number four, extend faith working through love to relationships with people outside your cultural group, outside your comfort area. Listen to Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12. This is how it really hit in in Antioch. Where Paul says, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul went on to say that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How much we really believe the gospel, how much faith really works itself out through love will be most tested in a world with people that aren't like you, in a room full of people that aren't like you. I mean, I think like you, may not talk like you, may not look like you, different levels of income, of wealth, of fame, of age and generation, skin color, gender, pedigree, of birth, education, political preferences, medical preferences, cultural preferences, things that in Christ don't make the difference. So it's not so much can you enter a room and everybody agrees about masks, but can you love everyone there no matter what they believe about masks? Can you love everybody there no matter where they come from? What? Because they are in Christ, and you are in Christ, and you are one in Christ, and the gospel just cuts across all that. And the way he will prove it is by putting you in situations where it must cut across all that, where faith must work itself out through love in your life. And number five, help others grow in faith working through love. Help others grow in faith, working through love. Pray for our church to grow in faith, working through love. Because these false teachers of Galatia did not understand the nature of spiritual health and they did not truly seek the good of the Christians in these churches, though they claimed to. They simply wanted to win Christians over to their opinions. At the end of his letter in Galatians 6.13, Paul's gonna say, for even those who are circumcised... These ones who are troubling you do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, they don't even keep the law that they teach, nor do they really want what's actually good for you. But they're merely trying to get Gentiles to live like Jews so that all the other Jews will be impressed and stop persecuting them for the offense of the cross. That's what they're really doing. So we need to ask ourselves, are these words that I am speaking, 
to this brother, to this sister? Is it stirring their faith in Christ? Is it stirring their love for others? Or is it going to sow seeds of discord? Is it going to sow seeds of doubt? Is it going to shake the foundation of their faith in Jesus? Is it going to rattle them in a way that makes it harder for them to love others? Will this build up their faith or tear it down? Will it reconcile relationships or tear them apart? Will this deepen godly convictions in others or stifle them? Will this help them love others or will it hinder them? Those are the kind of things we need to be concerned about. That's why Paul's confronting Peter publicly. The thing you're doing is tempting all these to walk in hypocrisy. It's stifling faith and strangling love. We need to pray that God will give us the wisdom, the strength, the grace, the words to encourage one another's faith. And that it would be working itself out in love. Christ died to set you free from the power and penalty of sin. So stand firm in that freedom by trusting the grace of Christ which is the power of God for your salvation, refusing to add anything to the finished work of Christ. Know that the Holy Spirit granted you faith in Christ, so trust his word on it. He fills your heart, so trust his power in you. The Spirit sustains your faith in Christ, so walk in his power. Through that faith, the Holy Spirit produces love in your life toward God and toward others, And so walk in that spirit. Faith working through love. The essence of the Christian life. The road we're called to joyfully walk until Christ returns to take us home. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we praise you for so great a salvation. We praise you for before the foundation of the world choosing to send your son into this world to live and to die and to be raised for our redemption, for the redemption of your people, for the building of your church, for the glory of your name. We pray that you would help us to be believing, to hold fast, to stand firm in that grace that you have lavished upon us in Christ. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to work that faith out through love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, toward love for Christ, love for all you have put in Christ so that in your church you would be glorified, so that in this church you would be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.